We're looking at the book of 1 John. If you've got your Bibles this morning, you can go ahead and turn there. We're going to be in, in 1 John chapter 4. And when Paul, or excuse me, when Paul, there I say, there I go. When John wrote this book, there were some things that were going on in that culture and, and some things that were happening to these Christians that he was writing this book to. Now, to give you a little bit of background, John wrote the book of 1 John, not Paul. I apologize for that. This is the same guy that wrote 2 John, 3 John, the book of John, and the book of the Revelation. Okay? And when John wrote this book, during that time in the church that he was writing to, what was happening is there were a lot of, of Greek religion and, and philosophical beliefs that were circling around and, and going through that culture. And what he started to observe and what he writes about in this book is the idea that, that some of those beliefs and some of those philosophies, they were starting to creep into the church. Now understand, those, they weren't necessarily bad but as those belief and those philosophies started to creep into the church, what you had is you had Christians, you had people who, who understood the gospel of Jesus Christ and they'd given their life to God and were following him, but then all of a sudden, they started taking some of these other popular cultural ideas and marrying that with their Christianity. They started saying, okay, you know what? God is great, Jesus is great, but I want this too. And you see, that's kind of like those fans. If somebody had walked into that stadium last night and I had seen a guy walk in with a Florida State shirt and a, a Texas Tech Bobcat hat, my first question was, who is he following? Who is he a fan of? And that's, that's what happened here. Is these Christians, they were letting these philosophies and these beliefs creep into their idea of who God was and they were marrying those beliefs to the point that people weren't quite sure who God was. They weren't sure who these people followed. So John sits down and, and John writes this book and he starts addressing these issues because for them it was no longer Jesus, it was Jesus and. And as we look at this, we can look at this book and we can say, you know what, that, it doesn't make any sense why they would have done that. Because we have the Bible, we have access to all of Scripture. Un, unlike these guys, they had the Old Testament and they had the stories of what had happened to Jesus up to this point, but they didn't have the entire Bible the way that we do. And nowadays, we have the Bible and we have access to it everywhere we go. If you've got a smartphone, if you've got a tablet, if you've got access to the internet, you can see God's word anywhere and everywhere you go. It's in your pocket most of the time. And yet that same problem that happened then happens now. Today, hundreds of years later, after John wrote this book, where cultural philosophies and cultural ideas were creeping into the church and, and churches and Christians were adopting them as, as normal and it's okay to do the things and believe the things that a culture that doesn't know God does and believes, we see that same thing happening today. And we can look around and there's, there's individuals, and I, I don't know who in this church may hold some of these beliefs, but there's, there's individuals in this church, there's, I'm sure there's individuals in other churches, in every single church in America, maybe even around the world, where, yes, I love God, but I don't see anything wrong with what's going on in society. I don't see anything wrong with it. But you see, that causes a problem because when we start doing that, when we start picking up the philosophies and the beliefs that culture tells us is okay, we start picking up things that Scripture tells us is not okay. And when we start doing that as individuals and as a church, all of a sudden, there's not a distinction between what our life looks like and what the life of someone who doesn't even have a relationship with God looks like. And John understood that, and that's why John writes what he writes here in the book of John, or 1 John chapter 4. In fact, let me, let me just throw out a couple phrases that you may be familiar with. How many of you heard this phrase before? 
Money is the root of all evil. You guys heard that before? Is that in the Bible? No, it's not. It's the love of money is the root of all evil. Completely different. Or how about this one? Cleanliness is next to godliness. You heard that one before? Is that in the Bible? No, it's nowhere in the Bible. Ladies and gentlemen, I've had the opportunity to do several mission trips, and I've gone to Jamaica, and I've gone to El Salvador, and I can tell you this right now. Some of the godliest people I've met in those countries were some of the filthiest people I've ever seen in my life. They were close to God, and they were dirty as can be. Or how about this one? God helps those who help themselves. Is that one in Scripture? No, it's not. In fact, that's one that shows up in, in several old, ancient, different cultures, different stories. The, the, the one that comes to mind, the one I found it most common in, was a story about Hercules and this wagoneer. This guy, his wheel comes off his wagon, and he prays to the gods, and Hercules comes down and doesn't even help him. Hercules says the gods, who, gods help those who help themselves. You see, that's not even biblical. But in churches, sometimes we'll hear those phrases. And those are just phrases. I'm not even talking about huge issues that don't have anything to do with who God is. And what that results in is people who call themselves Christians, yet they hold beliefs that in some cases completely contradict what Scripture says and go against the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's like the football fan that walks into a Florida State stadium and says, I'm a Florida State fan. And they've got Osceola tattooed on one shoulder and Albert the Alligator tattooed on the other. I know that's sacrilege. Nobody would ever do that. But, but that's what that's like. People don't know who you follow. People don't know who, who you're supporting. And when it comes to our walk with God, there has to be a distinction. And John is telling us in this book that we're going to look at today that there should be a difference in the lives of those who have had a true life-changing encounter, sin-forgiving experience with God, and those who just say, yep, I'm a Christian. There should be a difference. There should be a distinction in our lives in a time. And, and ladies and gentlemen, we live in a time where even people who go to church are confused about what is biblical and what is not. There should be a difference in our lives. If we know Jesus Christ, if we have a saving relationship with him, and that distinctive, that difference, it's the same now as it was when John wrote this book. So hopefully you got your Bibles open. First John chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 7. Let me just read verses 7 and 8, and we'll keep going here. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not know God, or excuse me, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Pretty simple difference right there in those first two verses. One simple four-letter word that we all know and use on a regular basis, love. Love should be a distinction, should be a difference in our lives. John says that as believers, our lives should be marked by love. And that's, that's no problem for us, right? I mean, we, we love every day. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love hiking. I love chocolate chip cookies straight out of the oven with a big ice cold glass of milk. But you see... We use that word, but we use it for so many different things. So the idea of love in our society, it doesn't compare to what God's talking about here. 
our idea of love, it's not even close because we have taken that word and it's, it's not a bad thing that we use it in so many ways. It's a way we express ourselves, but we don't always mean it the same way that God's talking about it here through John. The way I love my wife and children is not the same way I love hiking and chocolate chip cookies. It's completely different. And what John is saying here is that the way we often use this word, he's saying that love is from God. That is different than the way that we use that word. That is something more, something greater than what we sometimes refer to as love. He says that whoever loves, they've been born of God. And just so you understand, that is an incredibly powerful and exclusive statement that John is making. Love in this context, it's in the context of how God loves and shows love, and it's so much more than the word that we use. If we as believers have truly experienced God, then the result in our lives will be a love for each other that makes us look different than the world. That's what he says, and when he goes on in verse 8, he states it plainly. He says, God is love. You know what that means for us and the rest of the world? We don't get to define love. We don't get to say what love is because God has already done that. And I know that's not a politically correct thing to say, and I'm not even really getting into all that this morning. But just to understand, we're not called to be politically correct. We're called to be grounded in biblical truth and scripture. We don't get to define what love is because God is love and he defines it. And John is telling these believers here, they need to love one another. He's reminding them that during this time when people are confused, when they see the church and they see Christians, but they see them doing and saying the same thing that the culture is doing and saying, they don't know what this God thing is. They don't know what's right and what's wrong. And in that kind of time, there has to be biblical truth that we stand on. It is imperative that our lives reflect the evidence of a genuine conversion of Christ. That's what he's talking about here. And a main indicator of that relationship we have with God is the love that we show one another. (laughs) Because if you're able to love one another, despite the people that get on your nerves, despite the pet peeves that you have, despite the quirks in your family that all you thought were so cute 15 years ago and now you can't stand it when your husband or wife does that, despite all of those things, if we are able to show love the way God is talking about right here, guess what? We stand out to people as being different. And when we stand out to people as being different, nine times out of ten, people are going to want to know what that difference is. And we have the opportunity to tell them about the relationship that we have with God. We have the opportunity to take them to the truth of Scripture and how Scripture defines love and how it defines a relationship with God because God is love and it's on this point that many, many people get confused. Here's, here's a belief that happens sometimes. Scripture says God is love. Society will tell us that love is God. That that is the end goal. That, that our, our goal in life is to find someone we love, to settle down, to have a family, and just have this lifelong, beautiful relationship where love is all we care about, all we think about. It says love is God instead of God is love. But you see, there's a danger in that. Because if Scripture tells us God is love, Scripture has already defined love and it's already defined God for us. If we say that love is God, then we take love and we separate it from God and we make it the end result. We make it the thing we're pursuing. 
Instead of pursuing God, we're pursuing love. But you see, when we do that, we start to redefine God. And then all the other truths that we know about God from Scripture, we know that God is love. We know that God is healer. He's sustainer. He is judge. He is creator. He is all of these different things that Scripture tells us he is. If we can take love out of that equation, then we can take anything else we want to out of that equation. And now we've defined God. We've made God who we want him to be, and we're no longer following the God that reveals himself in Scripture to us. See, love is not the end point of what we're talking about today. Love is the result of our pursuit of a relationship with God. That is the distinction in our lives. That's why love stands out as the one thing that people will notice because we are pursuing God, and as a result of that pursuit, they see God's love in us, and they see that love flow out to other people. No matter how we approach it as a society, we cannot change the fact that Scripture is clear. We are able to love others as we pursue God. We are able to truly express love only as we draw close to God and experience His love. It's not about love, it's about God. All of this, church, our relationship with Jesus Christ, it's not about us, it's not about love. It's about God. I, I helped with a youth group one time, and they had these T-shirts I love, my, my wore out. But on the front, it just said, it's not about me. And on the back, it said, it's about God. See, too often we make it about me. When we bring in these other beliefs, when we start pursuing love, when we start pursuing all these other things, we forget about pursuing God. And all the things that we think we want, all the things that we think we need, we're wrong because God knows what we need. And as we pursue God, God molds our desires. God molds those things that we want in our life so that those things honor him and glorify him. So love, that's the distinctive, but that comes as a result of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now let me answer this question because I've heard this question before. Does that mean that people who don't go God can't really love? Well, they can but only to a certain point. Now, don't misunderstand me. That love apart from God, it can be good. It can be nurturing. I've known families that didn't have anything to do with church. They have children, and they love their children, and they'll do anything for their kids. So that love is still there. But that love is limited because that is not the love that God gives us. We don't understand what true love is until we go to the original source of what love is. And Scripture just told us that true source, that is God. That love apart from God, it's good, but it is not a love that will ever reveal the nature of who God is. It will never help us understand who God is because apart from God, you cannot experience the person and nature of God. And then John keeps going in verse 9. He says this, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a big word. We're going to talk about that in a second. See, here John gives a very clear picture of what God's love looked like. God showed his love in a physical picture. He showed his character, his love in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it's through his death, his burial, and his resurrection through his son that we experience salvation and experience the love of God. 
And it says right there in that verse, it says, so that we might live through him. This aspect of who God is, it brings you and I life because it brings us to life. Because before we have a relationship with God, we're dead. We're dead. Now, I've never watched this show. I've heard a lot about it. I know some of the teenagers watch it. Anybody in here watch The Living Dead? Nobody's going to raise their hand now. Yeah, there's a couple of you. The Walking Dead. See, See, I don't even watch it. Okay, and I'll tell you why I don't watch it, because when I was younger, I watched all kinds of horror stuff and it messes with your head, messes with your head. And I have proof of that because when we were, we've been married probably about seven years and Nathan was two at the time. Now understand this. I am a heavy sleeper. I Kathleen's told me that a freight train could come through our bedroom and I will not wake up. But I remember one, one night, it was probably about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm laying in bed, and I heard something. I don't know what it was. I don't know why I woke up. And I open my eyes, and of course, I'm groggy. I wear glasses or contacts most of the time, so I can't see really clearly. And in our dark bedroom, at about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, I see this head rise up over the footboard. I watched a lot of scary movies when I was little. And this head comes up over the footboard. And as I see this head, I can't make out any features, and I'm starting to freak out a little bit here. Because, again, I've seen a lot of horror movies when I was little. And the next thing I see is this arm come up and grab the covers and start to pull. You know what I almost did? My first thought, something's after me. Kick it in the head and run. But it was Nathan at two years old who couldn't sleep and was trying to climb into our bed. And it scared me. Thank goodness. It took me about five seconds and I realized, don't kick him in the head. That's your child. And I didn't. Uh, Nathan, come on up. And he laid down with us. Don't watch that stuff. It messes with you. But you know what? The, the, the whole idea of the walking dead, when, when I read this passage where it talks about the fact that, that we might live through him, it reminds me that, that before we know Jesus Christ, That's what we are. We are walking around and we are dead. We're we're spiritual corpses. There's no life within us. In fact, Scripture tells us that more than once. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, there's that love word again, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It says it again in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against you, or stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. To, to put it in, in simple terms, before we know Jesus Christ, we are walking corpses. We are separated from God eternally, forever. And now we don't, we don't like the idea of that. It sounds ridiculous to think, oh, I'm just a zombie walking around. But that's what's going on. We're stumbling around in the dark. We don't have a purpose. 
We don't have a goal for our life. Now, we may set our own goals, but we're not, we don't have the goal that God created us for. We're just stumbling around in the dark. And as ridiculous as that may sound, that's, that's a visual that we can understand because we see it everywhere. And what God did is he sent Jesus Christ to die so that that could stop. Because when we're born, we're born. Our natural desire is to live for us, to do what honors me, to do what makes me feel good. We are not born with the desire to please God. But God knew that, and God knew that before creation. He knew that before your parents ever met and thought about having a child. God knew that the day you and I would be born, the day we were conceived, we would be sinners, separated from him, dead in our trespasses before we ever took our first breath. But God created us for more than ourselves. He made us for more than that. He made us to know more and experience more in and through him than we could ever, ever have on our own. If he didn't, what he talks about in verses 8 and 9 that we just read would never have been necessary. God understands our need to know him. He, needs our, he understands our need to know his love. He understands it because he's the one that created us. That's what Pastor Ray talked about at the beginning of his series several weeks ago when he did identity crisis. God created us and he created us for a purpose. God knit us together in our mother's wombs. God has a plan for every one of our lives, but we will never know what that is until we have a relationship with him. And that's why he sent Jesus Christ. He saw that before creation and he said, no, that's not good enough. That's why in John 10, 10, it says this. It says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that you may have life and have it abundantly. The thief, the enemy, Satan, does not want anyone to find life and experience God. That's why he fills our head with lies. Every single day, he is at work in this world. That's why scripture calls him the father of lies. And those thoughts, those doubts begin to creep into our head about who God is. And, and we start to think, well, you know what? What I'm doing right now, okay, I know it's wrong, but it's not really that bad. Hey, what I'm doing, it's not near as bad as what they're doing over there. This side of the room, y'all, y'all are good. This side of the room, ooh, I'm glad y'all aren't as bad as them. See, those are the thoughts that start to creep into our head. Or, or it goes a different way, and we think, you know what? I know what I've done in the past. And nobody, not even God, could love me because of what I've done or because of what's been done to me. And, and Satan plants those seeds in our heads, those ideas of doubt, and those are lies. Those are lies. Those are the reasons that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross. He took every one of those lies on the Christ and he slayed it and laid it bare for what it was and said, this is the problem. And this is why I'm dying. Because that's what Jesus Christ did. He came so that we would not have to live in those lies. We would not have to live in that doubt. There's a theologian guy by the name of John Stott. He wrote a book called The Cross of Christ and here's what he says. He says, for the very essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. 
See, what that means is that means that sin, your sin, my sin, the sin in our lives, our very sin nature required a payment, a debt that you and I could not pay. We can't pay that debt because we're already sinners. For me to try and pay the debt for my own sin, it would be for me to take a financial debt on one credit card and pay it off with another credit card. And if you've done that, I'm not judging you. I'm just saying that's what it's like. All you're doing is going further into debt. You can't fix the problem that way. We can't fix our sin problem. We can't pay that debt that is owed. It takes someone who has never sinned. It takes someone who doesn't owe that debt to come in and take it for us and pay it off so that we are debt free. That is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. 1 John 4, 9 and 10, it points us to the verse that we are also familiar with in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But then it says in verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus will judge the world in the end. Scripture tells us that in the book of Revelation. He's coming back, and all of God's wrath is coming with him. But look at how much time we have to do something with that before it gets here. His wish is that no one, no one turns him away. Guys, the message of Jesus Christ, it's on the cross that Jesus killed every lie of Satan. No one can love you because of what you've done. That's a lie. No one can love you because of what has been done to you. That's a lie. All of those are lies, and Jesus laid them on the cross. And now I used to say this. I used to say that's why Jesus was murdered on the cross. And you know what? By our human terms, yes, Jesus was murdered. But Scripture doesn't address it that way. Scripture says Jesus laid down his life. He made a choice to go to the cross. He made a choice to die for our sins. He laid it down because that's how badly God wants us to know him. He became a living sacrifice, a propitiation for our sins so that we can have a relationship with God. We can know his mercy, his grace, his love so that you and I can be made alive in Christ and being alive in him, we can let the world see what his love looks like. Look at what it says in 1 John 4, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, it makes that statement there that that no one has ever seen God. However, if God loves us, we ought to love one another. What that means is the fact that, no, you and I may not physically with our eyes, see God, but when we have God's love in our life and we show it to other people, guess what? They see God. They don't see him face to face the way this is talking about, but they get to see God in us. They get to see that there's a difference in our life, in our relationship. The love that we receive from God, it's not meant to be kept to ourselves. We see right here that because God showed love towards us, because we've experienced what it means to truly know the love in the heart of the one that created each and every one of us, 
because we experience the nature of God in our life if we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, this should set us apart from other Christians, other followers, other people. God's love should be a distinctive. It should make us stand out from a world that does not know Jesus Christ. It'll serve to set us apart from those who say they follow God, yet have let the beliefs of the world muddy up the gospel of Jesus Christ. It makes us look different. And sadly, the truth is, we don't always take that approach. 1 John 8, 9, and 10 Sometimes we forget about the fact that Jesus died on the cross to pay a debt that we could not owe. That we were dead and undeserving of God's love, but God gives it to us anyway. We forget and we determine that because God loves us, then there is inherently something in us that makes us worthy of God's love. Scripture tells us there's not. There's absolutely nothing. And what happens when we take that approach is we become that self-righteous person. You know that person who judges everybody. Their words, their music, their dress, their movies. I mean, everybody. And and let me just say this. I'm not casting blame here, but if you don't know that person, you might be that person. Just something to think about. See, we, we come to God and we forget that we don't deserve God. God chose us. God sent his son for us. We didn't do anything for that. So we don't have the opportunity, we don't have the ability, we don't have the right to say, God, I know why you picked me. Because I'm pretty good. I says, no, you're not. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not one. It's littered through scripture. It's everywhere. We don't deserve God, but God chose us. And John is making the point here that it is not what it's supposed to be like when we're disciples of Jesus Christ. We are not supposed to be self-righteous, judging, thinking that we deserve God because we don't. As we receive the love of God, it should serve as a reminder of how undeserving of his love that we really are. We never did. We never can do anything to deserve God's love. God has lavished it upon us. And let me make this point too. Not just the people that are like us are the ones that we're supposed to show it to. He lavished it upon us so we can show it to everyone. Because unlike our love, God's love has no limits. Scripture tells us that in Romans chapter 8, verse 38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I know we use that verse and we talk about that verse in reference of once you are saved, you are always saved. You do not lose your salvation. But that is also a great reminder that the love of God knows no limits. And when we are doing our best to express the love of God in our lives to other people, it should know no limits. That means the people that nobody else wants to be around, we're supposed to love. That means the guy in the office that everybody kind of makes fun of, we're supposed to love. That means the guy on the corner of the interstate in Monroe up here who's always got the sign that needs money, we're supposed to love. 
Because that's what the love of God looks like because it has no limits. Nothing can stop his love because nothing can stop the very nature of God and who he is. And when that limitless love manifests itself in our lives, we begin to look different from the rest of the world. We look different as individuals and we look different as a church. When we love people that the rest of the world looks at and says they're undeserving or they're unlovable, we show them that there is something within us that is more than what we are capable of. And then we get the chance to tell people why. We get the chance to live out, to be living, breathing portraits of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And going back to that idea of the walking dead, walking around, their goal, whenever you see a zombie movie or show or whatever it is, is to make more walking dead people. So how much more should we who are alive in Christ have our goal to make more people who are alive in Christ? To help other people understand what that relationship looks like. To help other people experience the love of God the way that we have experienced the love of God. And I say that over and over. Understand, love is not the end goal of what we're talking about today. It is a vehicle by which we know that we are pursuing Christ. It is the distinction in our lives that we know God. And that's why John continues this line of reasoning. If we jump down to verse 19 in 1 John 4, here's what it says. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now that last part there, that makes it a little personal. We say we love God. You say you love God, but you hate the guy next to you. He says you're a liar. And you don't know God. And you don't know the love of God. John is bringing this entire line of thinking back around to this one simple fact. If you love God, you cannot refuse the image of God you see when you look at somebody else. Scripture tells us that we are all made in the image of God, right? So if I look at someone, if I look at Pastor Tommy and I say, I hate you, which I don't, I love you, brother. But if I do that, I'm refusing the image of God in Pastor Tommy. I'm refusing God. Because he is made in God's image, just like we all are. And when we hate our brother, we can't say that we love God and hate those people around us. Scripture tells us that when we do that, we lie. We don't know God. If we are all made in the image of God, and we are, then we cannot refuse that love of God and at the same time say we love God. In the end... This passage is not about us being a better Christian. It's not about us loving everybody. It's about our pursuit of Jesus Christ. And out of that pursuit of God through Jesus Christ, we know the love of God. And as we know the love of God, it becomes part of us and it flows out of us. And then people see a difference. And all those other beliefs all those other philosophies that creep into the church, all of those things, that love that flows out of us stands us apart from everybody else. 
Because when we know God's love, when we experience and express God's love, we know what it is to follow God. And we can go through scripture and we can know that, okay, this idea that God, God helps those who help themselves, that's not in the Bible. But hey, friend who just quoted that, let me show you what is. Love of money is the root of all evil? No, 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 no. But let me show you what Scripture actually says. See, we start getting the opportunities because we are following God. We are spending time in his word to understand who he is because we are pursuing that relationship that we have. And as we pursue God, we know God. We know his love, and his love comes out of us. This passage that we've read, it says that people should know love because they see it in our lives. They should know what the love of God is because they see it in my life and your life towards them. And seeing the love of God, they see that he is more than just love. They see that he is a life-changing savior, that he is creator, that he is healer, he is sustainer, he is jealous, he's righteous, he's everything we know him to be from the word of God. Every single bit of that comes when love is a distinction that the world can see and know that we belong to God. Because let me read one last passage to you. 1 Corinthians 13, 1, here's what it says. If we speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. When we meet God on our knees when we grasp that Jesus Christ died for our sins, when we finally see the lies that the enemy tell us that try and make us doubt God and we see them for what they are, when we see that Jesus laid those bare with his life on the cross and conquered sin and conquered death in his resurrection, when we see all of that and cling to the fact that God created us to know him and to know his love, then we can begin to pursue him. Then we can begin to understand what this passage is talking about, that it's not about love at all. It's about us following God. It's about us reading his words and understanding his commands for our life, not because we're scared of him, but because we want to please him and we want to honor him and we want to show him that we love him. I talked about with our middle school guys this morning about the two greatest commandments that Jesus talks about in Scripture when he's asked by the religious leaders, what are the two greatest commandments? To love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. The first thing we're supposed to do is pursue God. And the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others. That's the order. As we love God, as we pursue God, as God becomes real and concrete and planted in our lives, that love, it's easy to show others because we know what it looks like. And like God, we can start looking past those boundaries and those limits that he places in our lives. And, and what I want to ask you this morning is this, as we get ready to sing and close, is number one, do you know the love of God?
Has there ever been a point in your life where you've understood that Jesus Christ died for you? He didn't know you. He never saw your face to face. But he still loves you. Have you ever come to a point in your life where you said, God, I have sinned and I can't pay that debt. I've tried. I've been a good person. I've given money to the church. I've volunteered. I've done everything I know how to do, but it's not enough. If you're here this morning and you've never come to that point, let me tell you something. You don't know what love is yet. But if you decide that today, that you're ready to have a relationship with God, that you want to ask God to forgive you of your sins, that you know Jesus Christ died on a cross for you, you can know the love of God today. And you can start understanding what it means to pursue him. And I would encourage you, don't miss that opportunity. When we get up, when we start to sing, let me let you know this. You don't have to get up and come down front to ask God to forgive you of your sins. All that does is simply give us an opportunity for somebody to help you if you have questions and for us as a church to celebrate with you if you're making that decision. Because let me tell you this, Scripture tells us that when one lost person comes to know God, comes to know Jesus Christ, that there is a party, there is a celebration in heaven. Why should there not be one here? If we're pursuing God, the same things that please God should please us. So if you want to, when the music starts this morning, you don't have to move, but I would encourage you, try it. Come talk to myself. Come talk to Pastor Tommy. He'll be down here. And we've got some other folks that can talk to you if you've got questions. But don't, don't waste another day. Don't go another moment without knowing the love of God. And here's my second question. For those of you who are here this morning and you've already made that decision and you know what the love of God is, Are you having trouble loving your neighbor? Are you struggling with what John refers to as the second greatest commandment here, to love your neighbor as yourself? If so, ask yourself this question. Am I really doing what John says is the first greatest commandment to God? Am I loving God with all my mind and all my soul and all my strength? If you're here today and your struggle is the fact that you know the love of God, but you're having trouble loving your neighbor, here's what I want to suggest to you. Look at your pursuit of God. And again, I'm not casting blame. I have trouble with this every single day. Every day. Because there's people in my life that, frankly, I can't stand to be around. But you know what? That's because I'm not pursuing God the way I should be. Because if I was... I'd probably have a little more grace and patience for those people. I would probably start to see the image of God in them instead of just somebody that I really don't want to be next to today. We all struggle with it. Where's your pursuit of God? And if you're here today and you know that pursuit is not where it should be because you aren't able to love others, that is not a result in your life the way you want it to be, then I would encourage you You can talk to God right where you are in your seat when the music starts. Or if you want to, you can get up and you can come down front and you can get on your knees before God and talk to him about that. Guys, ladies and gentlemen, the love that flows out of us, it is a result of our pursuit of God. And if people are gonna know that we follow God, 
John says they have to see the love in our lives, which means we have to follow God. And I pray that that is what is happening for every single person in this room this morning.